Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth, and that's you as in university. But we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lisbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. Welcome back to another episode of Persistence You with Lisbeth. Today I'm here with my new friend, Shashti Basu, who is here from the United Kingdom. She has been many, many other places besides the United Kingdom, though. Shashti is a multilingual disabled intelligence expert. She's worked as a journalist, and she hosts a podcast called How to Be, and an award-winning activist as well. As a survivor from trauma... Living with both mental health and physical disabilities, Shashti began the How to Be podcast, looking at helping men- helping mental well-being through reading and interviewing authors. She's done an amazing job, and her story, we could just be here for hours today, so I'm sure she's going to be a repeat guest. But today, Shashti, thank you for being here and being on Persistence You and telling us your story. We're going to talk a little bit today about the different responses that you received from when you got a mental health diagnosis to when you ended up with a physical disability and the vast, vast, diverse series of responses that you get because it's we do not respond well to mental health uh, diagnoses and talking about it, accepting it. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to finally chat to you on this. So I'm really excited. So yeah, really I am so it. excited to have you. What a pleasure it is to be with you. Thank you. Now you have done everything. I mean, you speak how many languages? Uh, uh, theoretically five, uh, just because um, I just liked pick t- picking up languages over the years. And um, then obviously, I went out and actually studied it for my degree. And um, yeah, and lived abroad. Uh, as a result, uh, in quite a few places, um, practicing my skills, you could say, uh, just to, in a bid to keep it up. So yeah, <laughs> just yeah, languages is a very big passion of mine. So yes. Oh, I think that is so fantastic. As one who does not pick up easily on language, I admire and envy you. <laughs> now you lived in India for a good part of your childhood, right? Many months of the year and back to the United Kingdom. And then you lived in China for a while, among other places. So mm-hmm. Let's talk about how you, today, let's talk about how it was that you started to let people know when when mental health became an issue in your life and how people responded versus how they responded when you became physically disabled. Yeah, it's, it's the strangest thing because I've been, I've had a mental diagnosis, mental health diagnosis for a good part of my life. So I was diagnosed initially when I was 17 years old uh, with a mental health condition. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of stigma attached, um, especially as a teenager when you don't have much understanding. And a, a lot of mental health professionals don't necessarily have very good uh, sort of uh, approach to younger people. Um, so it, it was very much stigmatized from the get-go, even from mental health professionals. Um, it was the, the first kind of response when I was 15 years old because I was suffering from very severe agoraphobia, from very severe trauma. 
um, was to just put me on SSRIs and put me on antipsychotics. And it wasn't really the way I've ever been in terms of taking medication. Uh, I was always thought, yeah, I always preferred like a holistic approach, um, talking uh, approach. And so I, I felt very disappointed that from a young age, this was the introduction I got to the mental health world, which was to just silence it through medication and not really listen to why someone may be traumatized. Um, and that was really troubling, I found, um, because I was talking about trauma with my doctors, my GPs, and they said, we're just going to prescribe you antipsychotics as a 15 year old, which I thought was really troubling. And um, I'm not sure if, if you realize, like in the UK, it's less common to be medicated um, in terms of in that way. So it was quite surprising to suddenly think, OK, so this is how mental health is treated through medication for such a young age. So that that was a real shock to the system. And so obviously I just kind of kept it quiet for a very, very long time and continued to have a career, have a professional life. And, um, you know, I, I have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, which has been obviously stigmatized a lot. Um, it's uh, I think there's only been a few portrayals uh, on on sort of TV. For example, a very famous film was a um, girl misunderstood. I think girl interpret girl misunderstood girl interpret girl in a girl. Girl interrupted, maybe, or Girl something with Winona Ryder. That's the one. Was that right? So she was diagnosed with borderline personality. Okay. And um, it was from a memoir of someone who the the writer had. This was her experience of it, and it generally people kind of perceive the book as someone who has sort of attention seeking. Um, issues which was problematic obviously for a lot of people with the condition um sure. because that's not exactly the uh, experience for everyone so yes it was always troubling and so when I first then got diagnosed with a physical health condition and it was very visible so my arms weren't working my legs stopped working after a while and um you know there was genuine sympathy empathy you know, where people tried very hard to accommodate. And although it's not perfect, it's still not perfect, but there was still much more uh, kind of um, need or sort of want to actually help someone else. Um, you know, just even in my own sort of personal circles, it was much easier for them to deal with my physical health condition than my mental health condition because they knew there was something physical they can help with. But with my mental health condition, it was always just never, it was just never talked about. Um, yeah. Even there was a, I had actually taken, um, uh, sorry, trigger warning here. I had actually made an attempt of my life, like when I was 18 years old, I was in hospital. And, um, and basically, when I returned to school, uh, when I told people, there was no response. Um, so it's, and I don't really blame them. It's like 18 year olds. How, what would you really know about that kind of, uh, experience, you know, especially if you don't live through things like that. So, yes. Yeah, so I didn't ever have a very good relationship with how mental health 
was going to be sort of um, sort of handled by anyone, which is why when I suddenly became physically disabled, it just was kind of kind of a shock, um, bit of a surprise uh, that you know suddenly it was treated completely differently. But weirdly, when I started developing depressive episodes, obviously from not being able to walk and not being able to actually use my arms at the beginning, um, the immediate reaction was to say, um, to put me on SSRIs, which I thought was really odd because I was like, I've just sort of, you know, been handed this really um, massive diagnosis. Um, Isn't it common to have some kind of reaction so, yes, unfortunately, this is still a massive problem in terms of how mental health and physical health are treated and so differently. And very clearly, mental health is still very much an issue that no one seems to know how to deal with. It's so interesting to me that you bring this up because we're scared of it, aren't we? I mean, I think we are scared when someone we know has a mental health struggle or diagnosis or whatever, we'd rather recoil in our shell and say nothing and hope they reach out to us when they're normal again. And if that happens, and uh, then to risk saying anything or saying the wrong thing. And I don't think you're, I think you're correct. We are not equipped with what to say, but here you are. It must've been kind of validating in a weird way to have a physical disability arise and then people were suddenly like how can I help how can I show up for you what mm. can I do to make up for what you can't do right now exactly it does it's, it was exactly it because suddenly I was like "Ooh, I found a segue to try and start talking about mental health because right. suddenly I've got a platform for the fact that I have a physical health condition and obviously again it's not perfect by far in terms of how physical health is treated and disability is treated. But suddenly there was a platform to actually be like, hang on a second, this is also an issue. This is also a disability as well. And um, so it actually just gave me some sort of leeway to be like, OK, I can start speaking a bit more about this other side of a uh, disability, which is kind of crazy because when you think of all these veterans and who go through like PTSD after serving. And then this is what happens, which is right. unless you have some kind of physical disability, no one thinks about the, the very serious effects um, that war can cause. That This is a problem. You know, this is a real right. problem. So, yes. Um, yeah, it was a very strange kind of experience to go through. Um, yes. Shashti, how many years into to your diagnosis with the mental health uh, concern, with being borderline, did you then start having a physical disability? How many years had you already lived with people's response to your mental health? Thing is, okay, so I first started seeing a therapist when I was 14 years old. So I've been okay. having therapy since I was 14, so, so a majority of my life. And so from 14 to 29, uh, oh, wow. yes, okay. I was living with a, a, a mental health issues. Um, but I had a diagnosis when I was 17, because obviously it's quite hard to see in a young child sometimes. 
but yes, um, so yeah, I had been living with it for a very, very long time um, when I started having the physical symptoms show up, which meant it was a big, big change. <laughs> right. Right. Now you're dealing with two different things. But in your support system, what do you feel like was the most helpful when someone did show up to say or do the right things when the physical disability came? Like what were the best responses and that you wish people felt empowered to make those great responses, those great interventions or or support with the mental health diagnosis. God, yeah, there, there were some major, major things that my friends absolutely stepped up um, because, you know, I couldn't do very simple things. So, you know, I couldn't really use my arms anymore. I could barely walk. So, um, you know, they were washing my hair. They were doing my shopping. They were cooking for me. You know, they were doing everything. And they had a rotor system um, to kind of look out for me uh, for for months and months, and uh, until I started sort of getting a little bit of help, a little bit of assistance back, and a bit of uh, mobility back uh, in my arms and things like that. But they have absolutely like stepped up in that way, which was incredible. And um, you know, and that was that was it. Which was it took me to actually sort of ask for help. And then they were very much like ready and willing. And I think sometimes you have to, it has to be both sides sort of coming together and making that decision. You can't expect anyone to sort of read your mind um, and then be bitter about the fact that no one's helped. Because I think, you know, you've got to also be courageous enough to be like, I need help. Um, Please help. And uh, so they were absolutely brilliant um, in helping me. And um, then uh, we have a national health service here, which we're very fortunate about um, because obviously we, you know, <laughs> we have really good access to healthcare here. So that meant I had an occupational therapist from 2017, like 2017 till now, um, just basically always assisting me. Yeah, in some shape okay. or form. Um, so they helped in terms of rekitting my house, in terms of like, you know, ban- like special um, handlebars here and there, um, making sure I have special seats, being able to sort of walk around, special assistance to get to and from work. And then also ergonomic sort of desks and everything had changed. And so it was. I was very lucky in that instance that I was able to have um, – that level of help from people but also I was sound uh, sound of mind enough to kind of ask for those things as well because when you go into this haze of like depression when you first get diagnosed it can be very difficult to even know what you need um so it is it is a tough kind of transition um and I wish in that way I'm like we're quite lucky because it's it's only quite a new concept. But in the UK, they've started doing what you call recovery colleges. And I only discovered this after I was diagnosed with my physical health condition because I was disappointed that as soon as so the first reaction they gave me after I was diagnosed was that they wanted to put me on antidepressants. And I was just like, no. That that's not what I'm doing. I'm already on a lot of medication anyways for my physical health condition. And I just don't want to be in a fog all the time. 
Um, and they said, okay, fine, you can try what we have, which is recovery colleges. And essentially, it's incredible. So they have a, it's peer led, and also um, uh, sort of, so you've got a, a psychiatrist and psychologist and a sort of a support worker, alongside someone with lived experience of anything, of any condition, having lived through the psychiatric system. And they basically help you go through a course various courses of how to basically live again um through yeah it's it's fantastic so you are with all these other people who are in the same boat as you you know different stages different spectrums of different conditions they teach you mindfulness meditation how to reclaim your life again how to live through depression just cope generally and i was like this is what i needed from a very young age this is what i needed I needed to be able to see that other people are going through this and that absolutely we're all kind of in this together. And I needed to see a peer-led person, so someone with lived experience, talking about it from the other side, saying, yeah, I have bad days too, but, you know, this is what can also help and I'm here too. I was like, this is a fantastic thing. So this is right across the UK now. They've started introducing this right across all sort of uh, mental health facilities which i think is absolutely brilliant uh that really is mental health facilities okay good so recovery colleges that's right that is so terrific so that exact combination of peer-led and expert driven yep recovery Mm -hmm. yeah it's fantastic good Mm -hmm. that is fantastic so now how what are you doing to help other people understand how their response should be, whether it's a mental health or physical health disability, what would you want people to know is the right thing to say instead of saying nothing or shrinking away (laughs) and pretending that this isn't going on in their own world? Yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because I think, so I think, first of all, as a nation, as as people, we need to be connected again. Um, I think we've, we've kind of, become a bit sort of disillusioned and uh, blinded by just, I don't know, smartphones and things like that. So we get very distracted. So we don't actually, we're not looking at people's cues anymore. You don't really notice little sort of reactions or think how people are changing bit by bit anymore because people are too distracted and, you know, doing their own thing and too busy, like trying to deal with their own issues. And that's where there therein lies a bit of an issue in itself, because as a result, people are afraid to actually speak up because they're like, this other person can't see me changing and I am not right. in a place to be able to say I, I'm, I need help. So it's a bit of a reciprocal relationship here. Um, so I think being a good friend means being completely focused on that person when you're with them, you know take away all the distractions just sit there with them really understand what this person is going through listen to them and you'll be able to see the cues first of all if suddenly they're suddenly starting to behave slightly different then ask are you okay and I think that start of a conversation is one of the most important things you can do which is just at least open up the platform to say this is a safe space you may talk and so I think that's one of the biggest things that definitely is the first thing that needs to start. Because at the moment, I think people are just in their own heads 
Um, and it's very difficult to have that kind of conversation. Beyond that, it's is actually sitting and understanding, okay, you've got to be honest. You're As a friend, you have to be honest. Just be like, okay, I might not totally understand what you're going through. I understand. And this might be really difficult for you. And just say, okay, right, this is as much as I can handle. And then just be like, okay, this is my amount. Because you need to have boundaries too. You know, you're both trying to create a very um, sort of a, a dual bond where everyone benefits, you know. So everyone needs to have boundaries. So if you feel like, okay, this is as much as I can take right now, let them know from the beginning, at the beginning of a conversation, just say, you know, I, I'm also going through something right now. So is it okay if we maybe park this just for now, but I will come back to you maybe later, you know? And I think that's that's really important, which is, you know, otherwise this is how relationships break down. That other person will be like, I don't ever want to see this person because all they do is talk at me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is true. That is very true. And everyone has their own things going on, even if it's not a diagnosis, mental or physical exactly. or otherwise. But I, I like what you said earlier about the fact that we're not trained to know the signs. Of course, now we've all been isolating, at least for periods of time around the, the globe. And so we wouldn't see subtle changes or might not even notice dramatic ones. Um, but for those of us, if we have the wherewithal of mind, and that's a big if, especially if it's a mental health crisis, to be able to understand that our friends are not trained to know what to say. Nope. And so we might have to spoon feed them and say, I'm going through this thing. I don't expect you to understand yeah. necessarily everything, but here's what I would like to ask of you. Yes. And that, you know, having a safety word is useful uh, for, right. you know, for each party, like how much they can manage. Um, you know, it just it, it's it's just a good point, and also there's a respect between the both parties. I think if you have that, which is, I still love you and respect you, but I just need this to stop right now, and there's nothing personal. So having a safety word can be quite useful in that case, right? Because it can be overwhelming on the on both sides, probably. Absolutely. Mm. But how interesting now. You and I, when we spoke before this interview, and I think I made a comment about, uh, you know, someone being inspirational. A lot of times when we think about persons with disabilities, I know I, who am like a walking Hallmark card looking for what is positive in the world sometimes, um, you know, we, we hope that that person has a story of inspiration or we really gravitate toward people uh, with disabilities who have stories of inspiration. And you mentioned that it's it's kind of an unfair expectation. Mm. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit? Because it absolutely makes sense what you said. I think, okay, so one of the biggest issues is that there's no visibility of dis like disability or disabled people in the mainstream. And the only time they're in the mainstream is if they have an inspirational story. And that lies, there lies a real big problem. Because obviously, right. then you only expect inspirational stories from people with disabilities and it's not fair because again you don't expect that from everyone and it's a huge expectation and a huge pressure to put on someone when they're already just trying to live their life and with you know additional sort of barriers 
And then on top of it, you're sort of forcing them to have an inspirational story. Um, and that's very unfair. And I I think it's quite discriminatory, actually. Um, so that's why I think that you'll notice there will be a lot of people within social media, especially ad- advocates and activists, disabled activists who are very much like, don't put me in a box. Don't label me as inspirational. That's not the point of why I'm here. I'm just here to live my life and just, you know, live it without with a little bit of peace and quiet without all that pressure. And right. right. So the main thing, the only way we can change this is if we have just more visibility of people with disabilities just in the mainstream, just doing normal things, everyday things, more accessibility. And that way we will have less kind of inspirational porn, as we call it. So, yeah. Right. Mm hmm. Right. That makes total sense. We, we also talked a little bit about the social model of disabilities. And I think often people feel, will, will make comments like, oh, that's so sad. Such and such had a child who was afflicted yeah. with, and then insert, a, you know, diagno- physical diagnosis or maybe a mental health diagnosis. I actually once had a good friend who, when my daughter had a very dramatic rupture in her mental health, my friend burst into tears when she saw me and said, I'm just so glad I have normal children. And she meant that so supportively. That's the worst part of it all. It's like, she totally meant that with good karma, you know, like she just wanted to empathize, but that's what fell out of her mouth. And I've said plenty of ridiculous things myself. But on that note, when we assign a judgment with a disability, Mm. oh, that person is afflicted with, we really have assigned their fate in a sense. Mm. So could you talk a little bit more about what the social model of disabilities, you know, and what we could do instead? Right. So so the social model of disability basically it sort of reverses the the current thinking behind disability, which is like, as you mentioned, oh no, poor person, poor thing, you know, what, what, what terrible thing to have happened to someone. But it's actually looking at society and showing all the barriers that are actually put in place for people who are slightly different or, you know, have a different identity, because that's what being disabled is. It's an identity just like it is me being South Asian and a woman. Um, so, it is just a barrier that is put in place uh, where I can't do certain things. Something as simple as I want to go out and enjoy myself, but I can't because the tube system, sorry, the metro system or the subways here um, it all have stairs, which is obviously a real problem. But I want to live my life. Now, I wouldn't consider myself the problem. I would consider the fact that they didn't feel the need to put stairs and that's that is what the social model of disability is, which is understanding that assuming that everyone is the same, it makes the assumption that everyone is the same, and then as a result makes everyone else who doesn't fit into that box feel bad about themselves for not fitting into that box. Love it. That's a great definition, a good working definition. And the problem really lies within the fact that we need everyone at the table. Everyone. Oh 
has an offering, a unique offering to the world. And so we definitely need to make sure that we've created a world in which that can happen. So the problem really lies with the structures we've created. Absolutely. Because, you know, look, I can still work. The point is, is that you've just got to give me a certain sort of, you know, like a a better chair or something like that. So I can do do that job. You know, it doesn't mean my brain hasn't has stopped functioning. You know, I can still do that job. Same for so many people. If you go to Google, there's a huge sort of a disability section of workers who are fantastic and they're all engineers and they all do certain things. You know, they all can work. They just have different abilities. And that's what they are. It's different abilities. Having dyslexia is not an issue. Having autism is not an issue. It's just a different way of thinking. It's a different way of being wired. And, you know, when you have a population where a fifth of the population of the entire world is disabled and a lot of people who go into older age become disabled, it seems kind of ridiculous to assume that, you know, this is another, this is different. So I think that's, there lies in the problem where you just kind of have a very narrow definition of what normal is um, and this box that everyone has to fit into. And that is a very, very big problem because you're losing out. You're losing out on people and talent and workers and you're losing out on creativity just because you have such a narrow definition. Does that make sense? Absolutely. makes perfect sense. I love it. You've been able to continue a, a pretty amazing career. Where can people find out and connect with you and see the things that you're writing, that you're doing and and all that you're doing in the world. And like I said, I think we'll have to have another conversation about the different part of your life that we we chatted about earlier. But uh, yeah, where can people learn more about you and see the fullness of your work? Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. I love being here. Um, so, you know, the website is howtobe247.com, but you can find me across Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at howtobe247. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you and hearing what you think of the podcast. And hopefully we can all learn together and improve our mental well-being together. So, yes. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, tell a friend and go ahead and give us a review. I'll see you next week. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.